I'm Carrie Miller, and each week we put a deep track of an author interview into the feed. This week it's Emily Bernard, a writer who was born in the South, moved north, and began to contemplate how she was seen as a black woman. The book is called Black is the Body. The interview is from 2019. Thanks for listening. Good morning. I'm Carrie Miller. This is NPR News. Emily Bernard writes that she bears her mother's stories like jewels or thorns on a crown. Now I tell them myself, she says, because I feel a need, both obligation and urge to keep them alive. Those stories and the new ones that Emily is living as a black woman in America make up the heart of her new memoir. Blackness is an art, not a science, she writes. It's a paradox, intangible and visceral, a situation and a story. Emily Bernard is a writer and a professor of English at the University of Vermont. Her new book is titled Black is the Body, and she joins us today from Vermont. Emily, this has been long anticipated, so thank you so much for doing this in uh, probably what's at the beginning of your summer break, right, from school. <laughs> well, you know, this is I've been anticipating this myself. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> really sticking great with this. to have you. Uh, you know, really interesting to think how the weight of family stories shape our identities as members of those families. And when I think about this, I think about, you know, some of the research on memory, that every time you retrieve a memory, you change it somehow. So that when you gather, as many of us do with our families in the summer for a reunion, and you start telling family stories, what that means about the, you know, what it means to be a part of that family, the the identities that we each carry into that family, and then how our memories might change and shape the idea of that. I I sense you've given a lot of thought to that. I, and I love the the setting that you've given us, the family reunion. And, you know, the kernel of this book in some ways began or it took it sort of occurred to me or it was given to me many years ago when I was a teenager growing up and hearing my family, my Mississippi family, tell stories about the the, the origin of our name of the my mother, my maternal on my maternal side. Jefferson was a name that uh, was chosen by an ancestor who decided to adopt the name of President Jefferson really? as he embarked on a, a new a life away from his away from his white family actually to be with a black woman and to live a life that was not set out for him. So Jefferson perhaps ironically was a name that he chose and it's always been a story that has stayed with me why my family um, would tell this particular story what it meant to them. These are stories you know that they that had They'd listened to at the knee of, of ancestors who'd, who'd lived it, but it had always resonated with me. And as I get older, I wonder to what degree did I just sort of select that story, you know, out of others that were maybe told <laughs> the same occasion. But it just intrigued me in my 16 year old brain. And then this book eventually came to be. So when you would listen to your family talk about the decision of this ancestor to adopt the name Jefferson, I mean, what was the family, did the family see that as a way to honor? somebody who stood now now we know this is a much more complicated story but who stood in history for the idea of independence and freedom yes i think absolutely so i think it was a way um and i'm sure i'd have family members who might have different readings of it but certainly for my family to to establish itself and to remind descendants we are a people who make our own name 
And we are people who broke away from a traditional kind of story of, you know, a white um, oppressor uh, who, you know, just ruined a family. But in fact, we emerged, you know, from that story to carve out this quirky little arena, you know, for our own lives to begin as this branch of the family. And in fact, the ancestor who celebrated um, in these reunions was someone who renounced his whiteness, as I suggested, in order to live a life in something as close to marriage as was possible at the, t- at the time with a black woman. So there's this idea, I think, that's invested in that story is of dignity, you know, of people mm-hmm. who were descendants of slaves, but who emerged from that story and created their own their own pride and their, and, and reimagine what that name could mean for them. And that was, of course, not uncommon for black people upon emancipation to choose uh, the surnames of, you know, leaders of, of the leaders of the country. You know, Dave, uh, excuse me, Jackson and, and Jefferson um, are Washington, are names that are, are really popular among African-Americans for that reason. You know, it's about casting off a history and choosing something new. And so the name of a founding father is about writing yourself literally into a national story, mm-hmm. you know, your own body into a, a larger national story, announcing your independence, but also you're part of you're part of something else. I am an American, and I think for my family, that small story, you know, as shaped as it was and as as embellished as it was, mm-hmm. um, was was about announcing the very same thing. The other thing I was thinking about reunions is there is something about the story of yourself as the member of the family that means that when you go back at whatever adult life you've been living you know somewhat separate from your extended family i th- i feel like when you go back for a reunion whether it's a a funeral or you know just an extended family gathering in the summer you step back into that story that was written for you long ago, no matter what your life has been outside. I wonder if you experience that. I definitely do. Absolutely. And I write about this. I love everything you're saying. Just bring me right back into the, these moments, you know, that I that drove me to write this book because, you know, I grew up in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and, you know, my parents were my father is an immigrant from Trinidad. My mother, I always say she's an immigrant from the third world of the very deep south, you know, mm-hmm. the dirt roads and, mm-hmm. you know, and so came to Nashville. And that's where, you know, my conscious life began. But when I when I returned home to their homes, you know, and suddenly right that blast of understanding, I actually started before me, you know, before I was actually born, <laughs> you know, all of the things that make me up. We're already happening. I'm sort of just, you know, a cog on the wheel of this big machine. <laughs> and it is going to be overwhelming even now. You know, don't you find you encounter people you've never met, but you share maybe the cadence of your speech and, yeah. you know, the way you laugh. You think, my goodness, there's some there's some large, compelling thing out there that pulls us together. And that thing is called family, oh, you know. Yeah, that's exactly how it is. You know, one of the things that you write about um, hearing these stories from your mother is not just hearing them, but feeling them. And I, I, when I read that, I wondered if you have a memory of the first time your mother told you a story about herself, her childhood, and you, and this happens to kids, you know, mm-hmm. the door opens a bit on there was a whole world before I was part of her world. Do you, do you remember your, your mother, one of the first stories she told you about herself? Oh, I do. Absolutely. Well, I remember my mother was raised actually by her grandparents who were very, and I write about them, you know, um, in an essay called Going Home. Mm-hmm. And she adored them. They were very strict. Um, and they just 
they just loved her so much. She felt very safe and very protected uh, with them. And for her, it was an oasis. Um, her own mother, who was just an incredible character, who takes up, you know, the, you know, it's some, some real estate in the in the pages in my book uh, because she was such a fascinating, you know, kind of classic Southern grandmother, but who had a life that was she was not really. Motherhood um, was not it didn't call her in mm-hmm. the same way that it called my mother's grandmother. So she really grew up just with the attention of these grandparents um, that she couldn't find with her own mother, and the contrast between the two mothers she had. I think very early on for me, you know, who I adored my mother, just, you know, seeing your mother as a helpless child, you know, and having these stories about her as someone who was vulnerable, I think, um, you identify with that little girl inside of your parent. And those are actually, of course, I was not there. But when I, when, even when you bring up, bring my mother up, I, those, I can think of those images. I can see pictures of her as a little girl. And I think I never grew out of that feeling of my mother as a sort of romantic character who, you know, was sort of between mothers. Um, and that's how her life began. In some ways, her creative life began that way too. Her grandmother, um, excuse me, her mother wrote poetry. And my mother, it was something that, that really created a, a foundation that held them together, even when they weren't living together, their love of art. And I always assumed that I, you know, I'm following in their footsteps. And in fact, you know, that sort of unites us as part of the, that matern- in that maternal line. But my mother, as someone who was, you know, vulnerable, uh, was astonishing to me as a kid. I think that, you know, that your my mother could be someone who, um, you know, was a child herself. You know, it was pretty right. stunning. Right. Boy, Emily, I, I just, I love the vulnerability. It is the perfect word for it. Because as you were describing that, I was thinking, one of the photographs that I cherish most from my family is a photograph of my grandma, my grandma Miller, um, as a little girl. And she... Just to try to square, you know, this image of my grandmother, maybe in, I don't know, at four, three or four years old with this little haircut and, you know, her face looking so young and innocent with Mm. a grandma that, you know, was deeply loving. But she was also, I saw her as powerfully influential in the family. Mm. I mean... You've just named what it is about why I cherish that photo. It hangs on a wall in our house. I look at it every single day, and that's why I'm drawn to it, which I never really understood. Oh, I love that. I completely empathize with that. Parents uh, will often tell their kids uh, stories, you know, to kind of give, give a sense of who the family is in the world, but there are there are often kind of moral lessons attached to that, like our your grandparents struggled and they left everything they knew in the home country to come here. You know, there's an underlying this is this is also the story of our family. This is we are people who sacrifice. We are people who look ahead to the legacy of the generations. Did you mm-hmm. sense? that kind of moral undertone in the stories that you were hearing. Absolutely. I think that's actually my my parents, you know, they were really, you know, as much as any other force that pulled them together, the for, the sense of familial obligation, of oh. duty, mm-hmm. of a generational responsibility was something I grew up with. I don't even know if it was, you know, had to be, I had to be given a lecture about this. It was part of the air that we breathed, you know, as I was kind of joking, my, my parents both being immigrants, but really that was a philosophy they shared. You know, you are here, you are in this space, in this country um, to give back. 
Hmm. You know, my father supported um, his extended family. That was what, why he was sent to America. You know, it's that very classic story of the the person who comes to this country, you make good and you look back. Um, and there's not a whole lot of time for me, for nostalgia, you know. I think in that in that iteration of the gener- of the immigrant story, you know, you're here to work, to take advantage of opportunities, you know, to 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 do right, to set an example, and to make things possible for another generation. And I grew up, and I think in some ways I grew up with that ethos. Um, but what it meant, I think, was that, as I said, there's a, the honor, duty, obligation comes first, and then maybe the kind of romance of what you've left behind. Maybe it's too painful to talk about, or maybe it's just, it's not part of that narrative. So I think for a curious kid, you know, growing up, and you're, you know, I love the, the image of your, this, this ancestral photograph, you know, and, and compelling you all the time. For me, also, you know, what came before? What, what, how did you feel? You know, what was it like to leave behind uh, your family? What was it like to, to leave a country and, and for my father and not know if you'd ever live there again? Those are questions that were not, we didn't discuss them, but I certainly, they were live in my imagination. And I think in some ways my book is trying to, I'm trying to contend with that. You know, and it's, as I also, my kids get older, wondering about the kinds of choices I'm making now that seem so logical to me. What are the elements that I'm not stressing or even aware of that they're watching? You know, and they're, they're, right. as, as they begin to compile their own story, you know, well, here's what she, here's what she left out of that, you know. Um, Someday one of those yeah. daughters of yours will be doing an interview like this and saying, mm. I don't know if my mother knew this, but <laughs> in the story, right? I mean, that that's oh, kind of yeah. how it goes, right? We take, it is. we take the elements of the family stories that are told and then weave them into this sense of who we are in the world. And that could be very different from... You know what your what your mother needed to hear to be who she was in the world. Here's the other thing yeah. I was curious about with that. You know, you will hear this from the children of immigrants that childhood from from kids that are growing up with parents who have left something behind and come here, and there is that element of sacrifice and legacy. Their childhoods are not unburdened by you know they're they're not. Mm. They don't live full childhoods because some of those ideas are pretty adult ideas. Do you, do you know what I'm asking? Yeah. Oh, I know exactly yeah. what you mean. And I think I, I absolutely um, – I love the idea, you know, the, the question of, of epigenetics, you know, um, right. the idea that – as you were saying in the opening, the, the kinds of things that, are, that are, our bodies absorb, you know, the, the traumas of mm-hmm. our ancestor, ancestors and, you know, the traumas of our parents, the things that aren't, aren't even spoken. But as children, we sense, you know, the, the – um, it can be – well, as we know, you know, it can be a savage uh, rupture, you know, um, the decision to um, – even, even, when it, even when it goes well and is sanctioned, you know, and everyone is in agreement um, – I think again for my for my father's generation, there just wasn't money to imagine that you'd go back for holidays. You know, right. that wasn't the point. You know, I'm not sending you to America to, to come back and enjoy Christmas. You know, around the table, I'm sending you to get an education so that you can help us. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, so but you're. I think you do leave. You know that that these decisions and that a sense of your uh, your for your for me anyway. I can only speak for myself. I guess me um, that you're supposed to be doing something with your life. 
that is bigger than yourself, which I don't think is a bad thing to teach a child, of course. But I think for my father anyway, again, those that generation who didn't maybe dwell on the particulars, you know, the how it the, the emotional realm, you mm-hmm. know, um, the sense of duty was supposed to carry you through. My parents were also quite religious. So, um, you know, right. The, the the weight of that, you know, for a little kid sitting in school, okay, if I get an A on my math test, I guess I'm contributing to our family legacy. Is that why I should be doing this? You know, it's about something bigger. And, you know, I, I think for me growing up in that household, my parents, you know, were, I mean, I'm, you know, were amazing in that regard and that they had a very a seamless idea about what, what our lives were for. And now, you know, I'm living in a different era. There are things I can take for granted, like education, that my parents couldn't. Right. And so the question now is what what is a legacy? What are, what are those stories to leave behind for my kids so that they can have that sense of direction, you know, even even if to reject it. But I certainly had a sense that we were part of a I was on a I was on a, a vessel that was moving forward. You know, I wasn't driving it, but I was surely on it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there is no getting off without great cost, you know, not only to me, but to a, a, a project. You know, and for me, also growing up in the South at the, you know, the very cusp of, of the era of desegregation, which, you know, continues, um, that becomes even more crystallized. You know, it's not only this sort of idea of, a, of a, the old world, but really, when you get on this bus this morning, this is a pebble, you know, on in the whole project of desegregation. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what we are doing. So, yes, the bus is taking you to school. But we are also part of a larger – and we don't know what the gamble, how it's going to pay off, but we have to do this today. And I always, now that I'm a parent, think about the cost for those parents who put the kids on that bus in the morning. Again, my parents, you know, they didn't dwell on that really. Mm-hmm. They didn't dwell on what it felt like for them. Um, but what did it feel like to put your kids on the bus and say, I have no idea what's going to happen? You know, the world is uh, you know, on fire. You know, people are pushing bus- buses over, but I must put my child here because it is important for the larger story. Do, do you think your parents, you said they didn't dwell on it, but do you think they talked about it between themselves? Yes, I know that okay. they did. I know that. And actually, you know, I found after um, my parents both passed away and my, we were cleaning out the house, I found all of these newspaper clippings. My parents had clipped, news, you know, of all of the, the, the day-by-day, you know, decisions around desegregation in the schools that my brothers and I attended you know, they were keeping careful watch and kept them. Um, and I don't know if they were keeping them for their own memories or the, or so that I might one day encounter right. them. In some ways, it feels like really egocentric so that I would find them one day. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but here they, I mean, that's, you know, the kind of writers, you know, <laughs> well, it's all for me right. so I could tell the story. Um, but it was, but, but I was stunned by it because I thought, look how carefully they were tending to this story and how careful careful watch. I mean, why wouldn't they, of course? But, you know, I'm a kid and I'm getting on the bus and I'm fighting with my friends and I'm playing, making play dates. And I'm not, think, I'm not aware, but they were very aware. And it was, it's amazing to me now to think about how much they allowed me to just enjoy the mundane aspects of childhood. I, I mean, things happened, you know, things happened. Uh, we were, you know, we integrated our neighborhood and we were living in Nashville. So Nothing. We were lucky that nothing really dramatic ever happened to us as a consequence of those factors. But I was always aware that there was something on the periphery. But my day-to-day life was protected. My parents, you know, we had all the classic, you know, childhood, you know. But here they were guarding us, you know, as 
the world was unraveling in some ways and deciding every day what their job was going to be. And one of them, of course, was to keep let allow us to be children as best they could. Emily Bernard is with us um, since you've just joined the conversation. She's the author of Black is the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time, and Mine. She's a professor of English and Race and Ethnic Studies at the University of Vermont. And we've been talking, if you've just gotten in on this, we've been talking about what it means to have these family stories come down through the generations and how with what we know about memory, you know, as you retrieve those memories, they change. But as you gather anew with your family, how you kind of step back into those stories that were written about the family. And um, they're a joy, but they're also in some ways a burden in a family legacy. I I, I, I want to talk to you or, or ask you to read a bit about um, from this passage where you have to decide what to tell your daughters about who they are in your family and then who they are in the world. And you have this beautiful passage about the first time that they ask about the color of someone's skin. Before you read this, Emily, would you just set this up a bit? How old were the girls? Um, and and what is it about this this question that they ask? Well, at the time of this um this passage I'm going to read, the girls were about uh, maybe three or four years old. Um, and, you know, it was a moment that I probably should have anticipated, but I had not anticipated when they would literally ask what color what was their father's skin. <laughs> you know, um, I, I had to confront um, literally the limitations in my own vocabulary, you know, trying to figure out what how to answer this question in a way that would protect them, but also protect the family bubble that we work to yeah. create. My husband, you know, is white. Um, he's Italian-American. We adopted our daughters. They were born in Ethiopia. So it was a, it was an, it was a, it was a um, truly humbling moment for me because it was one of those moments where you realized that before you had children, you knew everything about raising children. <laughs> and then suddenly they are here and they have questions that are surprisingly hard to answer because I didn't know what the implication, the ramifications would be. All right. So this is from the passage about the moment that Emily's daughters ask this question about their father's skin. Okay. Okay. Mommy, what color is daddy's skin? Asked Julia. She was three years old. I had just packed her and her sister into the car to take them to preschool. Through the open window, they waved goodbye to John before he turned and went back into the house. I panicked. Just a few days before, my friend Tina told me that her son had recently made a reference to a black guy at school. She panicked. It turned out that her son meant a guy wearing a black shirt. Do you mean what color is daddy's shirt? I asked. No, Julia responded. I mean what color is daddy's skin? It's tan, I began carefully. Daddy's family is from Italy. Your skin is brown because you were born in Ethiopia. Mine is brown because my family is from the United States and Trinidad. She was silent. I was relieved. At that point, the four of us were leading Crayola lives. Except for the hours my daughters were in preschool, we lived in the bubble of the four of us, a family, the skin of whose members ranged from almond to sepia, according to the Crayola color chart. Before they came to know race, I wanted them to enjoy color. In my mind, in my experience, they were distinct. Race was trauma, 
color was beauty. Between race and color was the distance between our public and private lives. I maintained the distance for as long as I could. I resented it when the distance collapsed. My resentment had less to do with the introduction of the language of race into our vocabulary and more to do with my inability as a mother to enable my children to define the world on their own terms. I wanted their world to be different from the one I had inherited. The language of color sounded like the freedom I craved, freedom from my own past, for them and for me. Emily Bernard reading from her new book, Black is the Body. This is so interesting that what you said before you read that about reaching or kind of confronting the limits of your vocabulary, because, I mean, your word, your world is words. Um, You knew at some point, as as you've said, that this was going to come up. And I think we can hear in that passage how tentatively you begin. I mean, you're, you're a little scared about where this conversation is going to go, yes? Yes, absolutely. I think, um, you know, there's so many factors, of course, going into that little scene, and um, not the least of which being that my daughters, you know, we were making a family, you know. Um, here are four people, only two of whom are related by blood. You know, mm-hmm. My daughters are twins. Mm-hmm. Um, and we made a family together, and it was intentional and part of my husband and, you know, me, um, the everyday brick by brick building the family. And in some ways, part of, I think, building a multiracial family is figuring out how to create um, uh, the guardrail so that when your kids are noticing the world is not maybe seeing you as a family, that you have a response to that. You know, always wanting my kids to feel secure that we make sense to us. And that's all that matters, you know. So, you know, the curious looks and, you know, the questions um, that, you know, People might ask, you know, innocently, not presuming that my husband and I are are, are the parents of these children. Um, that w- that's always on my mind, you know, making sure that my kids understand that there's they don't question the sanctity and the, uh, you know, the kind of this bond, you know, that it, that it makes sense to them. So that was definitely a play, anticipating that. So the f- the factor, uh, the adoption factor, as well as the interracial marriage and my kids having a white father. There's also the reality of my own history, you know, again, popping up unbidden. Um, when I was coming up, learning about race, learning about my own blackness was traumatic. You know, my early memories were about, I talked about the small things that happened, you know, for our family. And that's, that's of course, speaking relatively because it, it, when I was a kid and, and, you know, our mailbox would get knocked down repeatedly or, you know, we, people would post things or write they put a for sale sign in our in our yard and write things you know on it letting them know they were not pleased with the black family living there of course those things they they moved me tremendously i mean i, I have never forgotten them the experience of that but my, as i said my parents worked hard to create a buffer but those things were happening you know you knew that outside of the world of that bubble of your family there was danger so if race for me that initial initial, initial experiences were about feeling um outside and a kind of the vulnerability that was really scary that I think kicked in in that moment and thinking for myself introducing the language of race here am I going to be introducing trauma literally you know to these kids in this car seat in the back you know (laughs) so I think that that was what was happening my own history coming and intruding on the moment and thinking well if I talk about race now it's going to have this effect on them but you know 
Of course, it didn't. They are growing up in, you know, Vermont and 20, you know, 2016, 2018. It's a naturally different experience. Um, we're not getting signs in our yard telling us to, to go, that we don't belong. But I carry that with me. And my challenge as a parent and is, is how much to introduce that history and at what moments to my daughters. You know, I don't want to revisit the trauma on them. At the same time, it's a salient part of my own history and it's a salient part of American history. <laughs> you know, I'd be doing them a disservice not to uh, let them know. And even in those signal moments to say, look, this is a moment actually moving into a house. This was a very big deal for me and my family to move into a house in a neighborhood that was, you know, where there are no other people of color. This meant something. But for us in 2019 in Vermont, it's just we're just buying a house. But I still carry that history in my mind. I'm always kind of on alert. Like, what is what is going to happen to us? You know, how do you how do you distinguish? And in that moment, I don't know that I handled it well, but it's simply the way I handled it. <laughs> I'm just kind of deflecting <laughs> and trying to, you know, kind of delay that moment. Um, and now, of course, the girls... Um, and we talk about that a lot. And they're not, we, you know, as a family, we're not shy about talking about race. And they are very interested and have strong opinions. So they're also just different than I was. I was a very shy, self-conscious kid. And they are very self-confident. So they're, 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 they're experiences of, of themselves as, as girls and, dark, you know, black girls and walking around in, in their bodies. It's just fundamentally different from mine because they're different people. Um, Although, you know, we were very identified with each other, but they, it's just, it is, and that's to me what's so fascinating. You know, to what degree are we free to invent our own stories? Or are we walking in lockstep with, with the past? You know, um, can we create something new because we wish it to be so? Hmm. Or are we trapped in history? And what to, how, how do we as parents or as a kind of, you know, intermediary uh, generation, you know, between my, you know, my I'm quickly becoming an ancestor, you know, as I get older. But um, you know what I'm saying? Like, how can I help my kids to be free I mean, and but, to invent themselves? I mean, you've just I mean, you have articulated the core question, I think, at at the center of all family identity. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So it makes this book so wonderful. Emily, thank you so much. I, I really looked forward to our conversation. So glad you could Me do too. this. Thank you. I really enjoy talking to you so much. Thank you for having me. Emily Bernard's book is called Black is the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time, and Mine. It is one of my thread must-reads for the summer. 